You are listening to the Global CTE Podcast with your host, Sylvester Chisholm. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Global CTE Podcast. I am your host, Sylvester Chisholm. This is the place where we like to wrap a blanket of goodwill around the career tech education community, where we interview the best, the brightest, the movers, the shakers, the innovators who are really preparing our students for success in the future in the global marketplace. Today is no different. I have my friend Amber Garrison Duncan today. Now, let me tell you about Dr. Garrison Duncan. She currently serves as the Executive Vice President of the Competency-Based Education Network, the nation's largest nonprofit organization devoted to focusing education on what learners know and can do. These models allow institutions to advance a truly learner-centric model that creates new, more equitable opportunities for economic mobility. Over her career, Amber has led work in competency-based education, learning frameworks, assessment, credential recognition, digital learner records, and open data standards, as well as quality assurance. Dr. Garrison Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. What an honor to be here and in the company of those who have come before me on your podcast. This is a great opportunity. So thank you. Yes, so. yes. I'm I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I feel like the work you are leading, uh, your team is is leading, is at the future of what education really looks like. Um, personalizing the learning, competency based, like it's it's um it's really an exciting time in that space. Uh, I do want to say a, a quick thank you to uh to our mutual friend Sean Murphy for uh for connecting us. I'm like, Sean, like who he's like, you know what? Sylvester, you have to talk to Amber. Yeah. <laughs> so that's I'm I'm glad to have you. He is here. a good friend to all of us, isn't he? Making sure yeah. the ultimate connector. <laughs> yes, he is. He is. He's he does a great job with that. Um but before we get too deep into all the work you're doing with uh, with the network, how do you get here? Like, what's the origin story? Yeah, that's a great. I love this question for people because, um, especially innovators in our space, of understanding kind of what drove them to to innovate, to change, to get um, into these newer spaces. So my my background actually is that I. Um, started in student affairs and higher education. And what drew me to that was um, I had an amazing experience as a, as a college student at Texas Woman's University um, and got it, the opportunity to um, really exercise all of my knowledge through a variety of student leadership roles and positions. So I was in student government and a leader in my sorority and, and all these different opportunities and um, and, and worked full time. And so really just found myself in the doing of everything and wanting to be a part of the college experience that was about the doing. And so um, decided to go into student affairs and spent 15 years in that um, in various roles, you know, again, helping students in the co-curricular. My la very last role before I left a college campus, I was at the University of Oregon leading assessment and student affairs, understand, trying to figure out how do we assess the learning that's actually happening in the doing that all of these folks are out um, and that we would want to represent that out in some way because I would have these students that I was working with that were like, 
raising millions of dollars for dance marathon or leading um, campus movements around particular issues they were very passionate about, but saying, gosh, this doesn't show up on their transcript or their resume. And it's really powerful things that they, again, don't do. And so that's where I think my, my true origin story for this iteration of my career starts uh, to try to figure out how do we help people just know things, but actually do things and then capture that so they can use that in in the labor market and the world of work in their communities and the ways that they want to use it. And so we have to ultimately know what those competencies and skills are. We have to know how to assess them. We have to have new ways of transcripting them. So that's mm-hmm. all the world that I, I get to move in and, and lead around through CBEN. I, I, I love that it's so personally linked to you being action oriented and, and thinking about, um, you know, what are those skills that are, that are being acquired? So just to kind of set the foundation, how, when I'm sure when when people ask you like competency based education, like what, what is that? Like what, how do you explain that and the work that you all do at, at the, at the network? Sure, that's a great question. We get that all the time. <laughs> Folks are like, what is this thing, right? right. Um, so for us, just you know, simply is that we believe that, again, learning takes place everywhere and anywhere. Um, and that our progression, our rewards of learning should reflect um, true, what people know and can do, your knowledge, your skills, your behaviors. Um, instead of the amount of time you sat in a seat or in a amount of years on a job that it really is not about showing up at logging hours. It's about, again, getting in and when you truly know and do something with the knowledge and that you should be able to progress based on that. So in a, in a competency based program, it's very clear what you're supposed to be learning. And then again, because of the ways assessments are structured, you can progress at the pace in which you learn. That also allows us to to have very personalized learning opportunities for people to accommodate whatever's going on in their lives. So as a K-12 student, we know a lot of them are working or maybe they have things going on that they're, you know, struggling with. Um, For some students, we also see something is a little bit harder to learn than other things. And so um, it gives them a chance to isolate and personalize and say, I just want to focus on this right now. Or again, I want, or maybe these, these three competencies are really easy for me and I can do them together and learn quickly and get, get on to the next thing. So um, that's, again, the, the flexibility, the relevance um, of that is that uh, that's, that's true what CB is. And I would, I would also argue at the, at the very core too, it's about returning learning to, to the actual learner. Um, our model of instruction has been based on a, a sit and get model. Um, if you if you look at the roots of pedagogy, it is about teaching children and being there's a, a sage on the stage or there's an instructor and they are the only ones who truly have any knowledge and know anything or can teach you how to do anything. And that removes agency from all of our kids who are mm-hmm. truly learners themselves. And so how do we return agency back to them? How do we also give them ownership of their learning? And then also how that reinforces who they are as people in the world is, is truly at the, the crux of this too, of returning agency to the learner. I, I Thank you for bringing that up. I, I feel like you're reading my, my notes here because I wanted to ask you that like, how, how do you see competency-based 
education improving that student agency? I, to me, this is, there are many powerful things about CB and why I love it, but this to me is one of the things that I think is truly, truly powerful when we think about uh, self as as a knowing and, and doing being, right? That psychology and what we know about how people learn and, and we're human, like you and I, if we just take off the, like we're constantly learning, that's who we are, it's how we are hardwired. But our our mass education system has like removed a lot of that of saying, well, you can't know that because this person right here did not teach that to you versus mm. saying, hey, there's a lot of knowledge in the world. What do you want to explore? What problems do you want to solve? How do I help you learn that? How do I help guide you through a process of learning so that you can go about learning on your on your own and at your pace and at, a, at a, what is relevant to you? Um, and so that is what that does for self-esteem, what that does for, again, agency in the world, um, the empowerment that comes from that of saying, I, I am somebody who knows something we hear all the time, especially from learners when they are, for instance, our military folks who come out into the civilian world, how demoralizing it is when people say, you don't have any skills, when they have lots of skills. And so that, but that starts when we have kindergartners, when we have elementary school learners where we have high school students who are just coming into their own and want to kind of you know again get out and explore and our education system says no sit right here and you've got to only learn this and you can't learn all those things you're curious about we've got to unlock a system that allows that curiosity that allows everyone to learn and reach their full potential um, or we're just going to continue to to marginalize folks Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. And I love the example you used with our veterans. And you're telling me this person is not an expert in critical thinking or collaboration oh. or like all these things that are that they have developed. But it's it's just thinking outside of the box versus traditional education. Right. So how, how would you. I think this will help make it like kind of simplify it for people to to wrap their brains around this. How do you what are some of the differences between our traditional education system versus moving more to a competency based education framework? Sure. If I might throw in a little history lesson here. Please, please drop drop some knowledge on us. <laughs> The, the current system and, and the the means in which it evolved and, and the moment we're at today. So really, when we think about our mass education system, and when I say mass, it, it is um, the moment in time when we said, guess what? Everybody's got to go. It, everybody's got to go to school, elementary school, high school. Those were things that we did coming in response to the Industrial Revolution, where we had lots and lots of work was changing lots more jobs but they were requiring people to actually have some skills and so we said you know what again everybody's got to go everybody also this is the moment we said we need um to make sure we have civics and other things in our curriculum because we want to make sure people can be um, full citizens and be able to be engaged in in our society so we started adopting in the 1910s and 20s this mass education system that we have today um, but it was based on time. 
And mm. because that was a very industrial way to think about things, right? Like we were building, everything was about the, the assembly line and time and being able to measure on time. That is what informed the development of our, our education system today. And so we um, are still trying to emerge from that. Uh, that was when the, the credit hour was and the Car Carnegie unit was adopted, right? Is saying like, okay, if we're trying to understand, everybody's gotta go, how do we measure progress in this date and time? How do we measure how faculty and, and teachers, how do we compensate them? And again, we, we landed on a time-based system, but we quickly began to see Again, psychology and education researchers move us in a different direction almost immediately. Uh, about the, again, the 10s and 20s, we had John Dewey, and a lot of our education friends know that that is a core of, again, thinking about learner centered, experience based, everything he talks about is related to that. Then you also have conversations of mastery learning starting to emerge in 1990, 1919, sorry. So mm -hmm. you start to see, again, thinking about that, you start to see serious conversations about assessments in the early 20s. But again, we didn't really start to push back on this model until we started to, in the, you know, the 30s to 60s, we started to say, wait a minute, this isn't working so well. We have a lot of people not finishing. We have a lot of people. So re reformation of our current system started. This has been a long time conversation is my point, yes. right? It's like yes, yes to this and so if any of you most of you are probably familiar with benjamin bloom and thinking about that that was in the 60s of again these set of early reformers saying we have to do this a different way we have to shift to a mastery-based system and so you started to see again in the 60s and 90s those early iterations you have k-12 starting to play with this you have alberto college really um, as the leader in a, in a higher ed institution trying this out um, we have the first government-funded teacher ed programs Funded and then um, in 97, we have Western Governors University officially founded as the first full CBE institution. And so again, all of that history to say what we're experiencing now is the result of evidence and research that's been done over almost, you know, 100 years now <laughs> that mm. as we have evolved our understanding of how people learn and how to structure mass systems of learning, we're still getting there. Um, and so that is where I think we have to embrace this moment of we are now similar to the industrial era. We are under an economic shift of the same size, right? The tech technological, the digitization of our economy means now everybody not just has to go to high school, but everybody's got to do something beyond high school. And how do we shift these systems to be able to accommodate everybody? be able to accommodate what everybody knows and can do, be able to get them mm -hmm. to their next place. The only way to do that is based on competencies. We can't do that with time-based measures and we can't expect everybody to go sit again, sit and sit and sit and expect a return on investment. And I think taxpayers are tired of that. I think individuals are tired of that and are sinking these new, they're walking with their feet. They're going mm -hmm. to these new models. Time-based model versus competency-based model. Mm. You just mentioned return on investment. What is when this works, when it's when it's going well, how should we think about that outcome, the return on investment for uh, yeah. CBE? That's great. The um, yes. And I love this question. So um, we've been working on this framework with um, some of our, our researcher colleagues. We find that, um, you know, certainly when we think about education, there's 
there's usually three components that people are very focused on. Um, they're focused on, again, flexibility. Can it meet everybody's needs? Can it be responsive to all the types of learners that I have and want to serve? So that flexibility is important to learners and to, to those seeking to be more successful with the learners they're serving. Then we know that, um, that costs, right? This has to get cheaper, it cannot get more expensive. And so we have to figure out how we make it accessible by, by making sure that it is, um, it is affordable for everyone. And then also the third thing is that there's actual outcomes with this. So what actually happens as a result of going through this program, time-based or not, folks are saying like, I need a job. I need to be able to have access a family sustaining wage. And so CBE for me hits all three of those things. It provides mm -hmm. again, the flexibility because it's not time-based, it is mastery-based. You progress at the, at the pace in which you can. Three, you get affordability because we're not making you retake things. You get credit for what you already know and can do. And then again, because you can often accelerate, people are often um, being able to complete this at, at shorter time frame, meaning less money. And then three, the outcomes associated with because we are so employer aligned, there are outcomes. Most of our colleges uh, and universities and others uh, with CBE programs measure that by way of looking at comparatively do my graduates earn more upon completion of this credential than in a traditional programs? Nine times out of 10, it's yes. And wow. so hold on, say that again. Hold on, say that. That's that. Say that again. That's that's heavy what you just said. Say that again. Graduates, graduates of CBE programs are earning more than their counterparts in a traditional program. Wow. Because it's very clear what they know and can do. Those competencies have been checked with employers to say, is this what you're looking for when when we when we send these folks back to you? Not just are these the competencies, but what does it mean to demonstrate this to you? Because we're oh, we're going to assess that. See, it's so exciting that the balloons popped up on them. Um, but the we we see you know there's organization lots of colleges that have again tracked these outcomes to say these are these are measurable returns on individuals because they were in a CBE program. Um, it was cheaper for them, and they have mm -hmm. higher wages coming out. Are are there some? Thank you for sharing that. That was that was, wow. That that's impressive to know that, um, and to put the the hard data behind it, um, behind the, the theory or the concept. Can you call out some of those skills that employers are looking for? Yeah, that's a good question. Is a uh, a common question people ask us uh, quite a bit. I do think there are some um, we you know over time we've called them soft skills, power skills, durable skills is the the phrase of the moment. Um, yeah, I'm 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 on the the uh, the durable skills uh, education advisory uh, yeah, committee. Yeah, love it. I mean, I I think it's great. I I do think there are again oftentimes a set of skills in which people, no matter what they're doing need to be successful those durable skills i think represent a collection of what those might be where i think we have to be careful in application is that um and what that again getting to the not just what the skill is but what does it look like to demonstrate that on the job that's where the nuance comes in and we have to mm -hmm. really think about those assessments of those skills so um you know everybody wants especially in this day and age again when things are changing so quickly Every employer we talk to wants somebody who can say, 
I don't have to know exactly the answer, but I can problem solve it. I understand how to at least triage it, manage it, and get it to the right person who can solve it if I'm not empowered to. We hear that over and over and over. Again, whether that's in a, a welding situation or in a in a nursing situation, or I mean, it's like that is just a com again common set of things. But thinking about the application of that skill, and those are very different settings. If I'm thinking about what's going to happen on the welding side and what's going to happen in the hospital, for instance, for that nurse. So that's that's the only caveat I often say with with that. But certainly communication, ability to work on a team, um, ability to process information and know what to do with that information quickly. Um, those are some very common things that we see uh, no matter what what field we're working in. Yeah, I, I like how you said that the there's this general overarching set of skills, communication, collaboration, teamwork, critical thinking, metacognition, these things, yes. but then yes. it's in context of nursing in context of it in context of retail or you know whatever the or welding whatever the the career or the the job uh requirement i like how you said that i want to i want to touch on you just said metacognitive and i think that's something we we in education have to focus on more intently that is a set of skills that allow me to use my, it's a set of cognitive abilities, right? That allow me to use my knowledge and my skills and my behaviors context to context to context. We don't teach those metacognitive skills. For a long time, if you think about it, we've said, oh, you know how to do that over here. Well, just come over here and do that. And that ability to say, I know I can do something and I can apply it in a new context is a very complex level. It's a very high level of metacognitive skill. We have to teach that more intently. Mm. So that's where too, I would, I would plug that into some of the durable skills conversation because yeah. as we shift more and more to a world where knowledge is freely available. Again, right. I can learn anywhere. I need that higher level metacognitive skill to say, what do I already know? What can I already do? And if I need to switch jobs quickly, and it could just be in nursing, I could be moving from ER to pediatrics, or I could be moving from, um, uh, uh, assisted living facility to the ER. That's a high level cognitive skill to say, okay, how do I take blood pressure in these two contexts when one's high pressure, one's not. One has a, a different clientele that needs a different level of empathy. One is like in the ER, just get in there and get it done because I got to get out of the way, right? Like those are very, again, different nuances that we're going to have to figure out how to accommodate. Absolutely. That's uh I've never heard anyone talk about metacognition the way you just broke that down, but that's, it is so true. How we should spend more time thinking about how we teach that part. Right, um, it, it can be learned. And I think this is where, if we go back to a lot of our early um, assumptions about intelligence that were informed with bias and, and discriminatory thoughts, unlocking that and saying um which uh, you know then it was like well um intellectual iq is fixed but what we know is people can learn these metacognitive skills anybody mm -hmm. can learn anything science tells us that but we have to be intentional about teaching them and so we need to do our students uh, that service of teaching them that skill set so that as they change context over time and they learn new things 
they understand how to to integrate that knowledge and apply it um, over time. I think that's the future of education. Mm. Wow. Okay, Amber, you got my, I'm like, the wheels are turning over here. I'm like, I have so many questions I want to ask you from that. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I want to, let's, let's break it down to maybe some tangible examples. Have, can you highlight someone in the network that is doing some, some outstanding work in competency-based education, maybe in career tech ed or connected to high school or any of that? I'm just curious, what what do you, anything coming to mind? That's a great, uh, we are, um, we are seeing a lot of activity, I will say. Um, okay. See it happening. We just uh, co-published a blog um, with Knowledge Works, which does a little bit more heavy K twelve than we traditionally do. We tend to be mo more post high school, but again, mm -hmm. what we're seeing is this emergent. And CT is such a great space for both of us to operate because we both operate very closely. This is when I would argue that CT is one of the only places where we actually have some solid cross system work happening in yes. education. Because otherwise these systems are totally disconnected. But in the CT context, I think it's really powerful when we see a competency-based approach applied mm -hmm. because we are providing a very solid bridge from K-12 into higher ed when mm -hmm. we use competencies. We can say, here's the certification that you earned in high school. And based on what you already know and can do, I'm going to start you here at your next credential, or we're going to give you so and so many credits already and move forward. But we're also seeing that being applied for adults who are either returning or seeking new jobs, being mm -hmm. able to come in and say, what do you, again, what do you already know? What do you, what can you already do? And let's just get you into these CTE programs that again, we can start to help you apply what you know and can do in a new context or towards a new piece of, of work. Yeah, g give me an example of of one of your post secondary highlights. Some someone in the network who's doing outstanding work. Sure, sure. I think we have. Uh, I would highlight a couple of of, and we see everything from community colleges to four years. So I'm going to try to have some examples okay. in in both. Um, but we definitely somebody's. You, I told you they're working outside and replacing ours. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I can't hear them. Go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. That is a skilled job right there. I can tell you that. <laughs> You say the guy outside my window right now. The guy outside my window totally went into a CBE program and <laughs> learned how to operate the lift, apply signing. I yeah, exactly. But um, <laughs> some of the, some examples I would share is um, certain. We are doing a lot of work with the Kentucky Community and Technical College System um, right. in a variety of fields. One of them, though, I would highlight is welding, where. Um, the 18 colleges have come together and identified a common set of, um, with employers, identified a common set of uh, knowledge, skills, and behaviors that are needed for welding jobs. They are all 18 developing um, together a competency-based education curriculum that they will share. The power of that is that no matter, this is where I, I would argue equity comes into play. It used to be that it would be, where did I wind up walking in a door to go get a welding, to go to a welding program? And dependent upon that college's relationship with the set of employees, I would have a particular set of outcomes. 
But as the colleges started talking with the employers, they're like, you all want the same thing. And the volume of people we need to prepare to work in welding is more than any one college could ever prepare themselves. Mm -hmm. And so how do we collectively prepare the workforce for tomorrow together? That is what happens when you start to see that alignment is that we could, if we all work together, we can move this through in a powerful way. So that too is, is tapping into those K-12 folks that's tapping into uh, returning adults. So the returning adults coming in, we've got lots of folks who, um, you know, the thing that welding faculty always tell me, you know, I know you know this, is what's, we have lots of folks who are out doing applied work that includes math, that includes all of these things that are really critical to do a, a job that is very highly skilled and, and requires that kind of knowledge. In a CBE program, we can say, you don't need to go sit in that algebra class because guess what? You already are doing that in your job. Let me show you how you're already applying algebra in that. We're going to give you the knowledge base to understand that, but you've got the application part down. That's where mm -hmm. it's kind of a flipped opportunity, right? For an adult, whereas we assume you have to know it before you can do it. These adults are doing it because they've got a paycheck to earn. And they don't have all the theoretical knowledge behind it. So it's a it's a different gap to fill than what we traditionally approach. I love that you brought that up. You're making me think of um, one of our previous guests, uh, Pat Brown. He's a director of CTE for uh, the Fort Zumwalt School District. And he spoke so much about learning by doing and the and the fact that it's it's not just algebra is it's algebra in context of yes. welding or even even taking that deeper english in context of welding like you need yes. to be able to read these certain reports and understand the vocabulary yes. connected to this skill which like if your interest is there then it personalizes the learning in such a deeper way and it's it's not such a big deal. Like you're not thinking about, oh, it's math or I have to write this paper. It's like, no, this is part of the job. That's right. That's right. We, uh, a phrase we kind of, you hear, we'll hear in the higher ed kind of setting is contextualized gen ed or contextualized English language learning, right? It's like, how do I contextualize this? Uh, the language component to me is the number one, um, like, I don't know how we get more of this occurring, but Think about the way we teach language is like, well, you have to learn these particular words. And it's like, I don't need to know how to say orange. I need to know yeah. how to ask for this. You know, again, I've got work to do. I've got paychecks to earn. And so how yeah. do we contextualize that English language learner as a as a co-requisite within the curriculum? So it's contextualized to what do I need to learn so I can be successful in my role and the skills on the job? That's where we have to go. Same with gen ed whether that's algebra, whether that's writing, whether that's mm -hmm. communication. Like I think about too, like how many faculty ask an employer, you want a good writer, but what does writing mean to you? And an employer is not gonna tell you an eight page research paper. They're gonna say, I need a very <laughs> succinct memo yes. with deep analytics, with deep summary, and with a recommendation on what to do. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that, and that's hard. Like. I wrote a dissertation and then I got a job and I had to write a two page memo. And I was like, oh my God, I wrote already 20 pages, no problem. But like getting a two page memo was like, oh, 
this is hard work. Like it was so hard at first, but again, different <laughs> contexts, different types of writing for different purposes. Yeah. But They're th all that's, appropriate, you know? That's but, so that's so insightful. Like when when and where in your education journey, you know, where you've gone from kindergarten to PhD, when where did you learn to write a business memo? You know, like a job. And I'm like, oh, I mean, yeah, on the on the job and and yeah, you know, God blessed Annette Howard at Lumina. She was our editor and she to this day I benefit from that mentorship and guidance and her yeah. investment in me to develop the writing skills that I need to be successful in the world of work. I use that every single day. And it my, again, the dissertation was important and it's great that I wrote, wrote a mini book, whatever. Yeah. but what I have to do to be again, strategic and do that summary, do that analytics, be able to provide a recommendation and clearly communicate what it is we need to do. That, yeah. that was on the job. Yeah. You just, you just said something. I just wrote it down. I'm like, we, we should have a course that is titled writing for the world of work. Yeah. You know, memos, emails, tweets, you know, what, like. <laughs> what is is interesting to me is our, our modes of communication are changing, right? Yeah. Like, even if you go back to the, like, we're fighting about should people learn cursive or not anymore? And it's like our modes, our modes of communication as humans is, is changing mm -hmm. because of the digital nature of what we live in. Yeah. Do we need to learn writing? Do it. In 20 years, are people yeah. going to need to learn how to handwrite? I don't know. Like, but it's, it, that will all shift. Everybody didn't need to know how to write before. Like, yeah, you know what? needs those communication tools and this communication you're, skills. But like, what those are. What is different. You're, you're so right. I, um, you're making me think maybe a couple years ago, I, um, I did a keynote at a school for uh, like a freshman academy, high school. And they, I guess as part of the the post activity after the presentation, they had to write me, a they, they wrote me a thank you note, right? So I received this packet in the mail with all these thank you notes from ninth, ninth graders. Y you would have thought like fifth graders wrote them. There was no, there was no cursive yeah. anywhere. There was no curse. I was like, I was like, who wrote this? It was I in my head. I'm like, oh, they don't need. No one's writing the paper. Yeah, you know, it's all we're typing. It, you we're know, typing, so it's we're different. Where we're voices. Yeah. We're you know, I mean, it's it it definitely is an interesting, interesting moment again where we're under transformation where we've got we're straddling both worlds a little bit, right? Yeah. And and so, what do we? Where is this going? How do we prepare people for what that is? I mean, it is a hard question. So I don't, I don't mean to make light of cursive or not, but it, but no. it, 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 the question we have, the discussion we have to have and come to agreement around is what, what are those modes of communication that people will need? And, and again, we do want to provide broad access to those skills so that everybody can fully participate in society at this moment in time that may not be handwriting. At one moment in time, it absolutely was reading and writing, mm -hmm. right? And that was where it was so important to participate in society that 
people were just used as discrimination, right? Like we yeah. are now at a moment where we have multiple forms of opportunity in writing and communication that we want to recognize, but let's be thoughtful about what we what we're doing as we make these decisions. One one hundred percent. And I think it's um whenever I'm talking to educators, I always highlight what you just said. Like it's so important that we have to think about what's now and next. And there may be some things that are no longer serving us that we cannot uh, stay loyal to. Like we, we should be thinking about preparing our, our young people for, or our college students for uh, what's, what's now. So they can have that economic uh, upward mobility for sure. Another place where I would just say those metacognitive skills are going to be so important. The, um, Mm -hmm. Something that just last month we, you know, all of us have been a buzz about generative AI, right? Think about like communication tool. Everyone's like, everybody should learn coding. That is the language of the future, right? And then lo and behold, last month, folks were like, AI is writing the code. We don't need to teach anybody coding or that's going to be a job. And I was like, boom, whoa, oh my gosh. Yeah. That happened in a lightning flash. And so that is the reality that we are headed into over the next 30, 50 years. What, to your point, like what we are going to train people on, and maybe it was coding, and maybe it was cursive, but that's going to change in, in an instant. And so now it's like, okay, what do I do with myself? What Again, what do I already know? What can I already do? What are the new things I might want to go try or iterate on? Again, those are those medical skills that are going to be one. Yeah, one one hundred percent. And and we have to think like this stuff is moving fast. Fast. Like the way jobs and opportunities are changing from like you say, oh, learn coding. It's like maybe, but what about prompt engineering? Like yeah, which if you which one is more like <laughs> yeah. for the future? to understand how to get the machine to give you the answers you want. Yes. And and that's the, I think that's the, um, we will, we will get enough ahead of ourselves to figure that part out. (laughs) And then AI is going to catch up, right? It's like anything that can be wrote done and we'll invent it at the first, but then it's going to come pretty right. So that's, I I think that's why those durable skills are so important. Again, those metacognitive skills is, Uh, this will change into your point on a dime. I mean, this, the rate of change, we talked about the industrial revolution being Mm -hmm. a moment, right? Mm -hmm. That was a pace of change that felt very fast in that time. We were reactive to it. Now we at least know, Hey, we can change things over time and we can Mm -hmm. move these systems forward. But again, it is a moment. We need to be very thoughtful in this, you know, next again, 20, 30 years, the systems we're putting into place and how we are prepared for the dynamism that we just, you and I just discussed. Yeah. As, as we are thinking about that future and the shift um, and our, our mutual friend, Sean Murphy, director of opportunity at Walmart, we had a great conversation around learning and employment records Yeah. and that shift from resume to LERs. What, what are your thoughts as in the context of, you know, competency-based education and LERs? Yeah. Um, so I um, am an early fan of this, was actually um, one of the first funders to come in and, and while I was at Lumina to create 
um, some of the LER, it was then comprehensive learner record conversations, but it was about how do we have all of this again? What does a record have to look like when we need to be able to know what it is that someone knows and be and is able to do? And as we were building all these new CBE programs, it's like, we're not, again, these aren't grades. These aren't credit hours that I'm accumulating. They're competencies. And so the data are different. The way we record this needs to look different and the way that we share it needs to look different. So that's where the, the transforming the transcript kind of piece came from. As we've gotten, um, again, over the last 10 years, been practicing around this and understanding how do employers use these? What do they like about them? They love the skills-based nature of them. Um, they love being able to see and, and have access to, they like the verification. So they don't have to come to the college and ask you to verify again. It's like, here's the person, here they are. Let's get them, let's get them through this and move through this, right? That being able to think about again, that individual in the dynamism we just talked about, whose job is changing constantly, they are going to need to have access to what do I, again, what do I know? What can I do? A place to have that reflection and a place to share that with employers. So that's where the, the movement has come from. I think it will be critical in, here's the thing too, everyone keeps talking about, we're shifting to a skills-based economy. We have to have new tools to actually do that. That's not just a like, hey, employers should do skills-based hiring. Okay, what are they going to do that with? They need new skills-based records to do that with. Otherwise, they will use all kinds of proxies that are not going to be good. And we will see what we've been trying to solve for just reiterated and redone. Mm -hmm. We're going to continue to have issues and inequities. And so I think the skills-based records, it's why we see governments investing in them. So uh, as far as CBEN, we work, we're working with Navajo Nation. We're working with the state of Alabama to implement those. Um, you're seeing the triad, the Alabama. Yeah, the talent triad. Saying like, there's got to be some kind of public infrastructure to allow this to happen. Folks can't just do it on their own. Again, all of us are using time-based systems and we're trying to move into skills-based systems. It requires new tools. And that's Mm -hmm. the new tools I think we're seeing emerge. LER is being one of those. Skills-based job description generators to help employers better communicate what they need on the job by way of skills and competencies and using a common language across education and workforce. That's where we see everything headed. Um, We're seeing that again in in Singapore, where uh, we work with the Singapore community of of colleges and universities. International conference there at the end of February. Um, Singapore has their skills future initiative. Um, Australia has been doing this work. Mm-hmm. We are increasingly um, being in conversation with folks in India. So, so this is a really, uh, the European Union has been having this conversation for 10 years. And this is a, a global movement that we also need to be able to participate in and be able to help contribute to and for our our citizens to be able to be a part of. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's it's this is really a global movement that is happening in between work and education. Can you share, share more about what's happening in Singapore and your conference? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, Singapore is very interesting in that they, um, again, about gosh, maybe even 15 years ago, it may be 
invested in what's called the government created what's called skills future it's a non kind of ngo type organization and their job was to help create the skills profiles for work that are that are what is the work what are those skills that are needed and then to provide every individual with a uh, a learning account, if you will. So instead of saying you get financial aid and it goes to the college in Singapore, everybody has a like a transformational learning account, which we kind of talked about here in the US, but not executed at all. Um, mm -hmm. And then I can go into the Skills Future platform, see what jobs are available, see what types of programs are available for me to use those funds on. Now, where we have been helping is the colleges to make sure that those programs are designed based on those skill sets and that they can provide the three things I talked about, the flexibility, the affordability, and the outcomes by way of wage. So that's where we're figuring out how do we take those skill sets and truly embed them in the curriculum to make sure that the, the educational programs that people are accessing um, can deliver on, on the hopes that they're being assigned. Um, so again, they've been doing that work for, for quite a while, um, but thinking about Again, how do we not just embed the skills, but again, how do we how do we truly make this flexible for our learners? How do we make sure that they can move through that at a pace on their own? Those kinds of things. And thank you for sharing that. You're, you've said the LERs, skills-based hiring, verifiable work, I know someone listening right now is thinking assessment, assessment, assessment. How? Like, how do how do we um, assess these skills? Once we say, okay, these skills are connected to this job opportunity, yeah. how do we um, assess? What's the future of assessments look like? Thank you. Yes, this is at the crux. I would argue. I, and I think most people would argue is that, again, we keep saying we need to move this direction into a skills-based economy, but then there's there's a lot of questions about, again, what are those skills? Who assesses those skills? How how do we know, right? If we're trying to shift off a time-based measure, how do we know what we can validate and trust? And that's where assessment comes in, right, is that we want to be able to know. Now, the challenge for us is that traditionally, when we think about that mass education system, I talked earlier about is when assessments were developed as a tool in education and learning, um, they have, we've all experienced this. There's not a time goes by when I say, tell me about a time you had to take a big test or a, an a assessment, right? Everybody's freaked out. They're like, uh, assessment's always been high stakes. It's been, um, it's been knowledge-based, meaning I'm testing if you know particular things, not if you can do something with that. And then also it was used in a way that was uh, uh, a colleague calls it performance sorting. We use it as a way to say you get something or you don't. You get an A, a B, or a C, but all those people have to go get work. And so it's performance sorting of who gets what. In the world we're talking about, assessment has to be about screening people in. How do we understand what you already know and can do? How do we then take that and personalize a pathway for you? How do we then allow you to progress based on mastery and move as quickly as you can? So it's moving from assessment as a um, as a tool to exclude and sort to a tool for mobility. And that is a very powerful shift in our thinking that we have to embrace. Then we have to think about the actual assessments themselves need to look different. 
they cannot just be knowledge based. They need to be performance based. Is so we would argue performance based criterion referenced. So that means performance based. I'm actually doing the authentic tasks that I would be doing on the job. And that's where you and I were talking about, like, do we not? This is not a multiple choice test at the right, end of the day. Right, right, right. You might want to make sure that you know some of that foundational pieces. But again, I'm going to ask you to go as close as I can to what you would do on the job. And I'm going to ask you to do that. And then I'm going to observe you doing it and assess that. Now, that can happen in person. That can happen virtually. That can happen. The world is open in that thing, right? But if we can observe it, we can assess it. So that's the important part. The other piece is criterion referenced. Currently, lots of different people get to make up lots of different things about what it means to demonstrate that mastery. We're going to have to get to a more common understanding. Now, to date, a lot of that has meant, again, asking that employer, what does it mean to demonstrate to you? So asking your employer collaborative. Um, Texas A&M Commerce did this with uh, their new criminal justice program. Um, they worked with their local police force. They were trying to diversify their police force, and they were trying to um, help them fill need. So the actual police departments, police supervising managers, help them build those assessments. This is what I have to have somebody do on the job to be successful. Let's embed that. So that's where, again, what we're talking about, common criteria that are understood across. Now, some folks may say that encroaches on academic freedom. It is a more collaborative process to understand mm -hmm. that, but faculty expertise are still needed to determine what those criteria are. But again, we wanna make sure that no matter what section you show up into, you're assessed on the same criteria. That is a fair way to understand if people know and can do something. Um, and so that's, that's those are two huge shifts for assessments that we're gonna to need to do. And then the question is there about scale. And I think that's where, again, our mass Mass understandings of assessment are everybody can tell me the SAT, the ACT, their TEKS tests, or whatever their state required, which again are all knowledge based assessments that are high stakes. And we're now moving to a place where we're we're constantly assessing and engaging in assessment to screen people and understand what they know and can do and move them on. Those will be big shifts. So once how do we recognize mastery? Is that a credential? It's either a, you can do it or you cannot do it. <laughs> I see you lighting up over yeah, there. What do you? What are your thoughts there? I mean, this is where I would argue. Um, this is where the LER is a tool, because what I can do on the way to a right a credential is a a bundle of a set of competencies and skills that represent, um, you know, again, a, some of it, an, a certificate might have 20, 30 competencies, a degree might have, you know, obviously 100 and some odd, right? Um, so it just represents a, a bundling of those and, and that those mm -hmm. that bundle represents a signal that the employer wants to hire by. Now, an LER allows us to say, and track those competencies on the way to the credential award. So we do mm. have evidence of individuals who are, uh, because this is done in real time in an LER, who will, again, a lot of our folks are working. And as soon as they, maybe they didn't get their full credential yet, but they earned enough competencies to get two of those done. 
to go into their employer and say, I don't have these two. And they either get a promotion or they're getting a $2 pay raise or a, on the way to, so they didn't have to wait till the end to get the benefit of, of their, their progression. Mm -hmm. I think that's the power too of this is that I get, I can then continue to grow. I get an immediate reward for what I'm doing and my life gets better. Now, granted, a lot of folks would be like $2 is not that much. It's not, but it means a lot when you're making minimum wage and mm -hmm. I can get, start to see my pathway up to what that credential is going to offer me and the leap that that gets me in a salary or the leap that that gets me in a benefit. Um, and so that's where, again, that those, those micro awards, maybe we call them or micro, mm -hmm. I don't, whatever you want to call them, or the, what, it may be a badge or it may be whatever. Yeah, I've heard, yeah badges or you're making me think we had uh, Noah Geisel on from, I don't oh, know yeah. if you know Noah, you know, yeah, from know Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the badging versus credentials, yeah. like maybe the badge represents what you're just saying, said competency, credentials, a bundling of yeah. badges. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And yeah. I think that's where the, again, the, but the, the goal is if, again, if people have to use their competencies and skills in the, in the labor market, let's give them access to those. As soon as we get them validated, allow them to mm -hmm. use them in whatever that way they need. And they're ultimately going to need that bigger bundle. We know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this allows them that progression and, to be able to see. You, you're sharing so much knowledge. I'm like, I thank you so much, Amber, for, uh, <laughs> For, for all of your insights today. Um, I'm curious, I want to get your opinion on how you would track the competencies or skills in this. Um, so there's an organization in, in St. Louis that I, uh, it's a nonprofit called Show Me the World that I support. And so we take uh, youth from under-resourced communities in St. Louis City, high school, these high school kids. Um, they get a chance to travel internationally to places like Costa Rica to learn about science, culture, entrepreneurship. They don't come from a background where their families can just stroke this check usually for this opportunity. So we have a unique model of uh, where they're learning these entrepreneurial skills through a coffee business where the students are selling coffee at farmers markets. Um, in-store promotions, learning the the roasting and like all of the elements of it, the e-commerce components, the communication, the financial transactions. And we track, we do track like we, those skills, like how'd you do with communication or teamwork or those sorts of things. But I'm awesome. curious, how would you, from your competency base, framework like what any thoughts i'm just just want i'm just curious your thoughts on would you track those or put those in the ler i don't know yeah yeah <laughs> yes. oh, yeah that's i mean one just amazing what a cool cool opportunity and um program and uh yes i would put those in an ler and i might think about who who validates those so this is where as we're trying these new things um we have relied on a formal system to mm -hmm. validate those skill sets. But here you have, but at the same time, we do this, like, do you ask for references when you go get a job? Somebody's saying, I've, I've observed you doing that. So having that supervisor 
in this particular mm -hmm. case, validate these skill sets, especially for young people, is critical. They can go mm -hmm. use that. Um, and it's a lot of the skills we were talking about, those durable skills you're, that they're getting the opportunity to engage in while they're um, exploring the world and building self-confidence as a learner. The other piece, again, is return that those validations mean, mean things to people in ways that I don't think we always fully understand. Mm -hmm. I, it, when someone says to you, you have, you add value here because you have these skill sets and the empowerment. I'm just, I had looked at the website, the empowerment that comes from that to be able to say, I do know some self-esteem that I can do this. Look, I've already done this. And, and I have a record to prove it. I mean, though, that's a, again, transformative in a way that I don't think we've fully been able to document yet from these records. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of how, like, we're thinking about it. It's like, when you take the programming and it's like, well, what are these skills that our workforce is looking for that these, these students are learning? If we track them, then maybe, like you said, an employer would be excited to to say like, oh, you were able to do this, and well, here's the verifiable work behind it. Like yeah. it could be meaningful. And that's I think that's the power of um, about thinking about the role of intimability, right? Is that here's an experience and an opportunity and a place where I'm learning this. It just wasn't in this formal program where again a teacher told me I did that. No, doing this. So it's just saying that's just as valuable. And actually, you know, again, back to my core, I would argue it's <laughs> even more valuable than, even more. right? I mean, that's what I need to be successful. I think too about how many of our, um, our communities, when, and when I say communities, I'm thinking of communities of color, folks who have been marginalized and excluded from formal systems of education. It's not that people weren't learning. It wasn't that they weren't doing in the world. This now opens up to say that's valid too. That is yeah. just as important. And instead of trying to break down a system that's excluded you forever and ever and wasn't built for you, let's just validate what you're already learning and doing where you're learning it. That's mm. that's where we could go if we, you know, if we wanted to. Wow. Thank you. Amber, okay, all right. Last last question, and I'm gonna let you go because I could just we this could be like a five hour podcast because you're like you just dropping so many gems. <laughs> uh, last question, I asked this to all the guests. I'm curious your thoughts as it relates to competency based education. What's your vision for the future of career tech education? Oh, it would definitely have to make sure what we just talked about of. I think we have to figure out how to open up opportunity and not just saying, here's the system you come to, but we have to be able to recognize again in the world we're headed into that we want, we need to screen more people into our world, not exclude them. And so how do we, how do we open up CTE for the masses? What are those creative ways that we think about the role of CTE in so many jobs? I think that's also a piece of, um, of this is coming out of this and saying, um, and let me back up. Sorry, I always have to bring in a historical context, right? Like, go CTE for it, go for it. Perceived as being a particular class of work for a particular kind of people, 
that's what we're breaking out of here. And so it's, you know, I think we talked about it being stigmatized and all, and we've been trying to work on this for a long time, but really career and technical education happens everywhere. And I would push on my higher ed colleagues to say, your research university, you're preparing people for the world research work. We've always been about preparing people for our work. And now it's time to figure out how do we have all these systems come together and complement each other? Because there's a lot of things that CTE does really, really well that traditional academic programs can learn from and vice versa. Again, that's that's who our, our citizens will need to be able to, again, respond to what we've talked about. Again, the dynamism of the future, being able to move among different types of jobs very quickly to be able to think about what do I already know and what can I already do? And maybe what's one or two more things I can learn and that it's, that may come from CTE, that may come from somewhere else, but I'm gonna need those pockets of learning quickly and I need to get on with my life and we've got to figure out how to be responsive to that. Uh, thank you so much uh, for sharing your, your insights on that. Uh, this has been an outstanding, deeply insightful, uh, so many knowledge gems that people can take away and apply immediately. Um, Dr. Dr. Garrison Duncan, if people want to get in, con in contact with you, what's the best place to do that? Or if they want to learn more about the work you're doing with, um, with CBN, like what, what can they, what should, where should they go? Um, well, just thank you for letting me <laughs> some boxes today. Um, I, <laughs> few thoughts about things obviously but um no i i just i welcome the opportunity to um to continue to shape these ideas with people it is critical that we have these conversations and um i certainly have thoughts but again our world is changing and so um please reach out to us at cben we are at c-ben.org is our website um you can find me on linkedin my email address is just amber at cben.org um and again, we are trying to shape this future together. That's what I would say about our network is we truly are a network of change makers and folks who believe that this can look different. And are, we welcome as many people into the fold who wanna try. We share out what's working, we share out what's not working and then push on to the next future. So we still have a lot of work to do. Um, so just invite people into that convert, into this conversation, um, into this work and let's let's create the next future together. Outstanding. You heard it there. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, don't be selfish. Share it with a friend, a colleague. A lot of knowledge was dropped here today. And until the next episode, remember, you don't have to be great to get started, but you have to get started to be great. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Global CTE podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to be the first to know about future episodes.